let's explore a little more and moving to the next list of five. We might not get to it all, but that's fine. So, as I said earlier, the first group of five approaches that I was talking about, they are really available in the middle, so to speak, of an inner critic attack. And what might be really helpful to kick in as antidotes, as ways of addressing what's going on. The second five, uh, in a way what they really are is the shifts of view uh, that we can practice. We can practice at the times when the inner critic is not so strong, when we feel relatively okay, and actually practice uh, these approaches that something shifts in the view that undermines the power of the inner critic, generally. So it's a feature of the inner critic, just as much as it's a feature of the self in general. Now, what the inner critic really, well, one view of what the inner critic really is, is it's a kind of manifestation of the self-belief, of the self-view of the ego structure. So it's a generalized manifestation of self-view in a certain form. Self-view, you know, it's just a feeling that I am a self and I am a particular kind of self, whether that's a fantastic self or a terrible self or whatever it is, or this kind of self or that kind of self. That has a particular way of functioning that's true across the board. And it's that we have a self-view, whatever it is, I'm like this, I'm like that, good, bad, whatever it is. And that self-view functions to uh, make the attention selective. In other words, I have this self-view that I'm uh, a boring failure. And I look out at the world from that self-view. And of all the totality, the complexity, the the sort of uh, myriad impressions that are available to me in any moment or through the day, this self-view starts, uh, it's like a filter, I mentioned this before, and I start selecting. So I look out at the room and I start seeing, focusing, if you like, on certain people's expressions who seem to be looking at me in a way that seems to be saying, you are a boring failure. (laughs) The view creates the selection of the attention, That's the information, so to speak, that I filter out and interpret a certain way. That's what I concentrate on. Where does it go? It goes right back in here, reinforces the view. It goes out again in terms of the attention, so it goes around. Do you understand? Dependent arising is part of that. So, in a way, first of all, we need to know that's going on. It's a very powerful force. And again, it's something that's going on all day. Can I practice seeing differently? Can I practice a different way of seeing? Can I practice seeing other stuff? In other words, my attention goes like a magnet to this kind of thing. Can I actually steer it somewhere else? That's one thing. 
And can I practice seeing more of the totality of things? And not being so selective to this thing and that thing, which only corroborates my self-view, only ties the knot tighter. There's something about practicing putting the attention in different places and seeing more of the totality. In a way, those two movements are um, part of what meditation is. Uh, So that I'm not just tied down and locked into reinforcing over and over the self's perspective, the self's perspective, the inner critic's perspective, the self's perspective, over and over again. That's that's all I'll ever see if I'm locked into that. So, I need to see something different, dwell, dwell with my attention on something different. One of these is, am I seeing the good that is here? Am I seeing my own goodness? Am I acknowledging, am I taking the time to sit in and with the sense of my own beauty and my own goodness. Have you ever had a conversation, perhaps with someone you care about, and you're listening to them when they are in the throes of an inner critic? And listen to what they're saying. And you're sitting there looking at this person, and you think they're not seeing this, they're not seeing that, they're not seeing that, and they're missing all that beautiful stuff that you know is there. Well, you see that happening in someone else much clearly, but you can guarantee that when you're having an critic attack, the same thing is, is going on. There is this kind of blinkering of the attentiveness, this locking in of the attention to certain things just keep getting reinforced. So, what would it be to really sit in, we say in the Dharma, incline the mind, incline the awareness, to dwell in a recollection, an acknowledgement, uh, an admittance of our own beauty, and what is beautiful within us, the beautiful qualities within us, that which is lovely within us, which is, which is there, totally is there. And this interesting saying is because, again, A, being how it's going to be completely ineffectual, but also, some person might think, well, is, wouldn't that be egoic? Wouldn't that be some kind of ego trick? It won't be at all. Funnily enough, the inner critic is actually a kind of ego trick. Trick. Trick and trick. It's just turned upside down. And the ego is actually massive when the inner critic is around. The self-sense is massive. It's way overblown, but it's all negative. But this is an interesting one. I have to be careful what qualities I... Um, I acknowledge and what qualities I kind of choose to celebrate and, and to, to dwell in acknowledgement of. The cultural pressure will be for worldly qualities. What kind of car do you drive? What kind of, uh, what do you do for a living? Where's your social status and all that? And again, it can feel like I'm not influenced by all that. I don't buy into all that. But we live in that culture where that is. Uh, what determines people's opinions of each other oftentimes, in terms of celebrities and all that. What would it be to respect ourselves for the right things, for the important things? So, for our ethics, for instance. You know, you don't... um, open a newspaper there's a whole list of parallel celebrities who get celebrated for their ethics or their care of ethics. 
doesn't, it doesn't register in most people's consciousness as something that's worthy of, of bowing, worthy of devotion, worthy of celebrating, unless someone really, uh, you know, does something in flagrant uh, violation of, of sort of agreed upon ethical codes. But even not even the ethics, but my intention to live ethically or inquire into what it means to live ethically, to explore that. Just that those intentions come up in me is something extraordinarily beautiful. That I care about that and I have an intention to kind of, you know, especially in these days when there's globalization, very complex ethical issues, that I care about trying to navigate through that in some way. Very few, you know, it won't put you in the newspaper, it won't make you famous, it won't make you rich, but there's so much more beauty in that than any of that other junk that we can very easily be kind of brainwashed into believing that this is what we should be respected for. The intention to cultivate qualities of mind like kindness, like goodness, like concentration, all of that. These are beautiful, what the Buddha called noble, noble uh, intentions. Something so worth celebrating. You know, very easily we can lose touch, or this came up in the question period uh, earlier today, not even fully be aware of what it is that we care about most. And so people tell, you know, occasionally someone says, oh, I was at this party and I looked around the room and I said, so-and-so played amazing guitar and the other person, they just published a book and so-and-so was a great juggler and whatever it is. And I couldn't do anything. And this, again, this person's just missing that stream of intention in them, the stream of how, how deeply they care about something that's beautiful. And it's weird saying this because sometimes I feel it's like it's, it can feel sometimes hard to convince people that that would be significant, that that would make a difference, or that it's even worth dwelling on that. But sometimes the things that don't sound like a big deal are actually way more a big deal than they seem. So there's so much um, potential for a kind of unshakability here. We're rooted in what we care about the most. And, and if we're going to play the game of respecting ourselves and, and kind of judging how much respect we're worth, which is a very dangerous thing to play anyway, but if we're going to play, at least let it be for the right things the things that are really beautiful and really important that we actually in our heart of hearts care about. This, in a way this moves into the second one, which is to do with aspiration. Maybe they're not separate. Something happens to the being and, and this uh, deep health and stability of, of the consciousness. When we are in touch with and aligned with what our deepest yearnings and deepest direction is in life, what we care about most deeply. Again, it can seem like it maybe isn't that significant. It makes so much difference, so much difference to whether we'll be bowled over by the next uh, attack from the inner critic or the outer critic or some comparison in, in the social scene or whatever it is. Am I rooted in that which I care about the most? 
Well, some time this lecture quite a while ago, it's really uh, stayed with me because it was such a strong example. And, and it's not, there are many of these in others. I was working in an interview at someone's at Guy House, and, and they were there for quite a while. And they were in and out of um, actually quite some nice stuff, and also a lot of struggle with this inner critic, really haranguing them. And she came in one day, and it was really at her, and she felt very beaten down by a lot of pain, a lot of pain wrapped up in it. And it was very much about not feeling worthy, not deserving, not deserving happiness, not, not feeling worthy in life. She also had a, a boyfriend who I actually also know, and like I said much earlier today, she, there was this pattern operating of the inner critic projecting outwards and feeling that the boyfriend was putting her down, feeling put down in that relationship. And we were talking, she was sharing some of the pain, and I asked her at some point, what is your deepest desire in this life? What is it that the heart longs for more than anything else? Right at the, at the base, at the root. And she went in, she was quiet for a bit. She said, she gave an answer so beautiful. She said, I want to live in service to love. That was her answer. I want to be in service to love. Beautiful. I'm not saying that's everyone's answer, it's just her answer. I want to live a life that's in service to love. That was something completely different come through. Now, in that moment, she could very easily have just let that come and let it go. But in a way, kind of keeping her, stay with that. What does that feel like? Put the words out there, hear the resonance of them, feel it in the body. And actually, can you align with that deep desire? What does it mean for the being and the consciousness to feel that, the depth of that, the beauty of that? You feel the being coming into alignment with it. And there's a devotional movement that you feel something aligning with a beacon, with a direction that we care most deeply about. And it was quite a dramatic shift. It was wow. She was quite surprised. It, all this comparing mind just dissolved. Uh, Openness came, actually joy came, the complete opposite, and strength came. Again, a quality that wasn't there at all. She was being very uh, downtrodden, very kind of weakened by this, this uh, what the inner critic is inflicting. But strength, joy, openness came, dissolution of the comparing mind. Very, very strong. Radiance came. Quite dramatic. Now, it's not, of course, that it was just a one-off, right, that's fixed it. That's the end of it in a critic for her, uh, for the rest of her life. But again, she discovers something. And the more that we can be in touch with that direction, and the purity, beauty of that, the depth of that, the more we can <coughs> live close to that, the less the power of the inner critic. Unfortunately, the more the power of the inner critic, the harder it is to even get connected to that or know what it is. We basically go like this. There's something so powerful in being, living, in asking ourselves, as I said earlier, earlier this morning, one of the beautiful capacities I have as a human being is to ask myself, how do I want to live? How do I want to live? I've got this existence. How do I want to live? What do I want to give? How do I want to express? Asking that question and, and sticking close, doggedly, to the answer and, and living from there more and more. And the inner critic is, completely ineffectual in, in relationship to that. It just doesn't have the power in relationship to it. There's something we need to do over and over and over.
The third one has to do with <coughs> has actually to do with the whole notion of self-view again. So sometimes people ask me, what is what is inside meditation? What is this thing inside meditation? Is there is it like a technique or like a certain thing? To me, it's actually by some up, it's actually learning to see differently, learning to look at experience, to relate to experience differently, and to look and see and relate in ways that take the suffering out of experience, that, that drain the suffering out of experience. That's inside meditation. There's many different ways of looking, many different ways of relating. Unfortunately, a lot of the time in our life, we look and relate and see experience in ways that actually bind the suffering there, that create more suffering. It's that meditation actually learning different ways of looking. That decrease the suffering. Now, one of these is <coughs> actually seeing that what manifests out of me in terms of speech and uh, behavior actually comes not so much from a self as from a web of conditions, a whole array of inner and outer conditions, present and past. All that together creates what gets, it, it, it uh, co-creates what gets expressed. So, you know, you're working in the office or at work and you say something to someone, or you make a mistake in some way, perhaps in, 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 uh, in uh, how you speak to someone, or in some uh, administrative task, whatever it is. And very easily, the self gets judged. We make a conclusion about the self. I'm rubbish. I can't do it. I, 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 I. Make a conclusion about the self, rather than seeing this action what came together out of this whole web of conditions coming together. Maybe I was tired, maybe there was a lot of pressure on me, maybe all kinds of things, inner, outer, present and past, come together and comes, comes the action. Not the self. Where is the self? So, something happened, uh, I can't remember what it was, it was only a couple of months ago, and I was going to one of these day-longs, just like this, some, somewhere else. And it must have been uh, autumn, I think. <coughs> and I was leaving on a Friday uh, to go and get the train to, to, to teach day on. And I had worked in the morning on the Friday and actually tried to do too much. So I uh, was too, got a little bit late and then rushed to get my things together, get in the car, go towards the station, halfway towards the station, ah, the train tickets. <laughs> so I rummage in my bag in the country lane, no train tickets. Ah, they're in my desk. Back to the guy house and uh, found them in my desk. By this point I was really quite late. So driving like a complete maniac through the country lanes um, and I have to, you have to park quite away from the station and the more in this case, run to the station. So I parked, and then I ran to the station. Train was late anyway. <laughs> um, got to the station, was waiting for the now late train, and, and then thought, oh, did I close the car window? <coughs> and I couldn't remember. Now, technically, the reason I couldn't remember, technically speaking, is because there wasn't enough mindfulness 
in the moment of leaving the car, to remember, mindfulness and memory connect, to remember, did I close, with enough presence room, did I close the window or not? So, I'm sharing this story for two reasons. One is to um, puncture a view, perhaps, that uh, mindfulness is the point of the path. Um, the point of the path is freedom. Freedom comes from deep understanding being absorbed and digested. And one of the things that leads to deep understanding being absorbed and digested is mindfulness. One of the things. If I make the whole path about mindfulness, and being in the moment or being with what is or whatever it is, I've actually missed the point of what the path is. So I say that just, you know, that because I could have a reaction, well, I shouldn't be teaching the Dharma if I can't even be mindful enough to do the thing. I could look at it from a self point of view. It's like one could look at something like that and say, I wasn't mindful enough, I'm not good enough, I shouldn't be teaching, I blah 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 blah. Could I actually look at it from the point of view, there were all these conditions there. There was too much trying to be done in terms of work on the morning of the Friday. Then there was the rush, etc., etc. All these conditions, inner and outer, meant that mindfulness, which is another condition, mindfulness is not self. I am not self. I can't judge myself for being or not being mindful. That condition of mindfulness didn't have the supporting conditions around it because it's outer and inner conditions. The mindfulness in that moment wasn't there. And that's all it means. That's all it means. To make a self-conclusion out of it, that would be what we would call delusion. And that leads to suffering. The point is freedom from understanding. It's not about mindfulness. But more importantly, seeing it in terms of the conditions, the conditions, rather than the self. So that, does that make sense, that it's about the conditions? Yeah? So, you can hear that, you can say, yeah, I get that intellectually. But actually it's quite a dramatic shift of view, of view for most of us, because we're uh, habituated to looking at things in terms of self, and just making these conclusions about myself. I'm not this, I'm not enough that, I'm not good enough, I, 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 I. The conclusion is always about self, rather than seeing the web of conditions. I need to repeat that way of looking over and over and over. And again, it might not sound dramatic, but if, if I keep doing this, and sometimes I need, and one might need a friend or a teacher to actually help one expose the, what's in the web of conditions. What's there that I wasn't seeing? I make these conclusions about myself. What's the, what was there in the web? And look together and actually see it differently. And again and again and again and again. And I get used to seeing in this way, in terms of conditions and the web of conditions and the dependent arising rather than the self. And over time that makes an enormous difference, an enormous difference. The whole structure of self-view, self-definition, self-conclusion gets, gets opened out and dissolved. And the inner critic is, is part of that. It cannot, uh, without that kind of self-conclusion, the inner critic cannot function. It's, it's impossible doesn't sound like a big deal, 
But over and over, something changes in the very way we see life and see ourselves. And, of course, now, I mean, one other thing that I took from that is, okay, be, be careful how much you plan or schedule on the Friday morning if you're going away. It's like, so it's not that one absolves oneself of responsibility, there's something about action in the future, not about the self. Which choices is it wise or sensible to make? simple example, but we, we do this a lot, and it's impossible for the suffering of the inner critic to be there without this kind of wrong conclusion making. The attention is too tight, too locked into certain specifics, and making conclusions that are not actually true, and not seeing the bigger picture. Okay, I'm going to skip one and, and, and move to the last one. <coughs> I think I said earlier, but the inner critic and the pain of the inner critic, actually the functioning even of the inner critic, it relies on a certain kind of relationship with thought and the thinking mind. And it relies specifically on our gullibility in relationship to thought. In other words, we tend to believe the thoughts that go through our mind. We tend, just because I have a thought, and oftentimes a charged thought, which is a painful thought, it's a charged thought about myself. I tend to believe that. that something's got very locked in, in the relationship with thought. That gullibility is locked in. So, if I can kind of cut that automatic believability of thoughts, if I can um, take away some of that unquestioning authority that we give to thoughts. That undermines the whole uh, edifice of, of the inner critic. So, as I offer a practice, it's like another way of practicing that can be very useful for this. And we did the standing meditation this afternoon. I said, um, you can do sitting down or standing, it doesn't matter. So, be in the body, feel the body sensations. Maybe you feel them at one point. Talking about specific kind of meditation practice now. Not so much when the inner critic is strong, remember the second verse. Feeling the body, feeling the body sensations, and then one opens up the awareness to the field of the whole body sensations. You actually begin to see this kind of almost like uh, fireflies, this dance of sensation or perhaps shading in and out, ebbing and flowing. of, of sensations within the field of the body, just coming and going, getting stronger and morphing and disappearing, all of that. And, and the awareness is open to that totality, with that, present to that. When I feel settled in that, then I can begin opening out even further to listening to sounds. Sounds are very interesting because they're coming from all different directions usually and all different distances. So what happens when we open up, not so much to this sound, and then that sound, and then that sound, and then another sound, one sound at a time, one by one, rather, just as we're opening up the totality of the body sensations, kind of globally, you can open up to the totality of listening globally, the totality of sound. So you've got the totality of body sensations and sound, all together. The awareness is 
360 degrees, more open, more receptive, more allowing things to come and go. This is a practice that in time what happens is we begin to feel quite stable there. It's, it's not a fixed point of concentration, it's more an openness, more a space of awareness. And that begins to feel quite stable and as if it can kind of accommodate all this coming and going and changing of the body sensations and the sounds. Very naturally, almost without even trying, if you hang out in that space long enough with the sounds and the body sensations, it will start to include thoughts. Thoughts will appear and disappear in that space just as sounds appear and disappear in that space, and just as body sensations appear and disappear in that space. And if you really hang out, it all becomes much of a muchness. It's like just kind of phenomena, whether it's body sensations or sounds or thoughts. It's all just stuff, fireflies, uh, fireworks through the sky. It's all just stuff happening in the space and disappearing. What one's really practicing then is a kind of spacious allowing, allowing of things to be born, live and die. When that's there, it's practice. Everything I'm saying today is practice. In other words, a talk is only as good as how much a person practices it. You might be impressed by a speaker, bored by a speaker, but it doesn't matter, it's completely irrelevant. What, what matters is, is taking something on board, using it, and finding a way that that, that borrows to freedom. So this is a practice, and it develops over time. But eventually, once in that space, got a very different relationship with thought and the thinking mind. Just easy come, easy go. They come like, like micro events, like fireflies, instead of like shooting stars, whatever you want to say. And there's spaciousness around. There's, there's, they kind of go by. We see it ephemeral and insubstantial. And I don't have to believe it. There's space around thought, which is usually what is not there. I mean, in a criticist function, it's definitely what's not there. There's not space around the thinking mind and the thoughts. And the more I can hang out in that space, this is when inner critic is not strong, remember. The more I can hang out in that space, something over time begins quite radically changing my whole relationship to the thinking mind. And I see, I don't have to believe all this stuff. A thought is actually just a thought. It's just like an impression in awareness. And if I hang out in that and hang out in that, it's like that wisdom that insight begins to seep into the heart and into the being. And over time, my whole relationship with thought gets changed. But even in the thick of the battle, even in the thick of the, the inner critic attack, actually it gets undermined because it relies, as I said earlier today, the inner critic relies on us believing thoughts. And pull the plug on that. Gradually, gradually that drains out my belief, my gullibility in relation to thought. And the inner critic has nothing to stand on, no legs to stand on. Because I know, I've absorbed the insight that a thought is just a thought. It's come through that spaciousness of awareness. I could pick 
different things, you know, different things, but just by no means exhaustive. But there's, there's a lot of possibility here in these different approaches, an enormous amount of uh, potential for freedom. And I, say, I said this before, but I want to say it again. The movement from feeling imprisoned by the inner critic to really being free in relationship to it and ending it, ending it, that is, that is completely possible. It's completely possible. And I don't, I don't usually, in this style of teaching, I don't usually share about my practice uh, when I teach. Uh, but I will say that I, I have made that journey. And so when I say it's possible, I, I mean it, I know it, because I, it's something that's happened. Something that's happened through practice. It's just a matter of finding the right ways of approaching. It might be slightly different, the kind of different practices that different people cobble together to make a powerful package that delivers that freedom. And it's interesting, you know, for some people, I've seen, I've worked with people that literally, literally from one day to the next, the inner critic was there, was doing its thing, and the next day, because of a deep, deep insight, deep cutting, it's gone, and it doesn't come back. Other people, myself, it was actually more gradual. It was interesting, I remember going through uh, a period where um, the, the, the words of inner criticism, yeah, you're, you're failure, they would still come up for this period, but they had been drained of all power. So it was almost like just, just uh, running on an empty momentum. Just the words, but they were empty, they were meaningless, they had no power, they had no pain associated with it. It's just that there was a habit of criticizing myself and calling myself all this stuff. Meaningless and without power. Eventually, even the words stopped coming up. Even that stopped manifesting. And even beyond that, very possible, very possible to get to the point it's not, it, it no longer comes up, but we even know, we absolutely know for sure that it cannot come up, it cannot manifest. To paraphrase the Buddha, you cut something at the root, you cut this uh, poisonous tree right at the root, and it cannot. You know in your heart it's impossible, no matter what, and you've seen it for years. It's been years since it's come up. All kinds of things have happened, and mistakes have been made, and whatnot. And, and, but it's been cut at the root, and one feels that, and one has that confidence. It cannot manifest anymore. And, and that journey is absolutely possible, and it's possible for everyone. It's just a matter of, of practice, finding a way to practice, bringing the heart and the intelligence and the uh, dedication and inquiry into practice. Okay, let's have uh, maybe. A little quiet time together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.